Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Now I want you to picture in your mind a photograph of the famous Loch Ness Monster. Got it? Chances are, the photo you're imagining is the one known as the surgeon's photo. Why was it called that? Who was the surgeon behind it? We're going to delve into the depths of that mystery in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Now, this podcast is called The Legends of Surgery, but today we're also going to cover a legend of a different sort, that of a prehistoric creature living in one of the bodies of water found in the Scottish Highlands. But do not fret, we will also be covering a surgeon who, in its own right, is pretty darn legendary too. His name is Robert Kenneth Wilson, and let's begin with a bit of some background on him. Born in 1899 to Scottish Quaker medical missionaries, Robert entered this world on the African island of Madagascar. His parents helped to build and operate a hospital there, but our young protagonist was sent back to Britain to be raised in England by his elder sister Emily, who was married to one of the Cadbury brothers. Educated in reading, Robert left school in 1917 to enlist, joining the Royal Artillery, and saw action at the Western Front with the British Expeditionary Force. In 1918, he sustained a gunshot injury to the left hand and both legs, which fractured his left tibia, resulting in a slight limp. This time in the military led to an interest in firearms, which will play a larger role in his life as we will later see. Following the war, Robert studied medicine at Trinity Hall, Cambridge, earning first-class honors, and from there did his clinical studies at the hospital known today as the Royal London, in the neighborhood of Whitechapel. Regular listeners may recall that this was the same neighborhood where the Jack the Ripper murders occurred, as described in the last episode. The hospital, originally known as the London Hospital, dates back to 1740. It became known as the Royal London Hospital as of 1990, following a visit by the Queen, who added royal to the name. Wilson spent three years in residence at the London Hospital, where, in 1925, Sir Henry Souter carried out the first open mitral valvotomy, leading to an interest later in thoracic surgery. Let's take a minute to explore this story a little further. Sir Henry Souter, who lived from 1875 to 1964, was a British surgeon who had previously also served in World War I. In his case, he had been the surgeon-in-chief at the Belgian Field Hospital in Antwerp and survived the siege and bombardment of Antwerp in the autumn of 1915, giving an account of the harrowing experience in a memoir entitled a surgeon in Belgium. After the war, Saudar returned to civilian practice and became the director of the surgical unit at the London Hospital Medical College in 1920. Now this was an era where surgery on the heart was considered an impossibility. The great German surgeon Theodore Billroth, see episode 39, said in 1883, quote, Let no man who wishes to maintain the respect of his medical brethren dare to operate on the human heart, end quote. Now, despite this, some progress was made. In 1896, a stab wound to the heart was repaired by Ludwig Wren, considered the first cardiac surgery, and by the time of the war, some intrathoracic trauma surgery was occurring, including the evacuation of foreign objects from the heart. But true intracardiac operations had not yet been successful, although there had been numerous well-publicized failures. Now, this all changed on May 16, 1925. The patient was a 15-year-old girl named Lillian Hine from the East London neighborhood of Bethnal Green. She had suffered three bouts of rheumatic fever, leaving her with mitral stenosis. 
So let's set the scene. At this point in the development of surgery, there were no blood transfusions, antibiotics, or even modern anesthesia. The ECG had only been invented in 1909. The patient was pre-medicated with morphine and atropine and initially given an inhaled anesthetic mixture of alcohol, chloroform, and ether, before being maintained on an ether infusion via a device known as a shipway apparatus. Once asleep, Sauter created a left thoracotomy, which is an incision into the chest, and reflected the costal cartilages of ribs 2 through 4 to gain access to the heart. The pericardium, which is the sac around the heart, was opened, and silk sutures were used to retract it back. Then the left atrial appendage was opened, and Sautar inserted his index finger in, bluntly breaking down the valvular adhesions which were tethering the cusps of the mitral valve. This part of the operation lasted just two minutes and is known as blind open-heart surgery. On the way out, a suture on the atrial appendage tore, leading to brisk bleeding, which was quickly stopped with a clamp and suture repair. The entire operation lasted one hour and one minute. Lillian made a good recovery, being moved to the medical ward on post-op day 11, and was discharged to a rehab home two and a half weeks after the surgery. She lived for seven more years, dying on July 20th, 1932, at the age of 21. Lillian's heart was preserved and it remains to this day in the Museum of the Royal London Hospital. Despite this relative success, Sautar was criticized for the bold operation, and it was not repeated for 22 years. When asked about the historic occasion in 1961, Sautar had this to say, quote, I did not repeat the operation because I could not get another case. Although my patient made an uninterrupted recovery, the physicians declared that it was all nonsense, and in fact the operation was unjustifiable, end quote. Despite this attitude, it is worth noting that this operation was the first transauricular approach to the valve, meaning through the atrium, the first intracardiac manipulation of the living heart by a human hand, and the first successful intracardiac operation on record. A true trailblazer. All right, enough of that. Let's continue on with the main story. In 1924, Wilson married Gwen Gulliver, with whom he'd go on to have two sons. And as of that same year, he was shown in army lists as a lieutenant in the Royal Artillery and Territorial Army. From 1931, Wilson was also in the Royal Army Medical Corps Reserve of Officers, leading to an important role in the coming war. But more on that in a minute. After gaining a fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh in 1926, Wilson went into general practice for three years before establishing an office at Queen Anne Street. At this point, he developed a special interest in gynecology, which lasted through the 1930s. Let's go back to Wilson's expertise in firearms and ballistics. He'd amassed a notable collection of guns in his home in Highgate, London, which took up three walls of a room dedicated to this purpose. He was even hired as an expert witness in murder trials at the Old Bailey. Now, the Old Bailey is the central criminal court of England and Wales, and is so named after the street upon which it stands. That street follows the route of the ancient wall around the city of London, built by the Romans around 200 CE, back when the town was known as Londinium. A bailey, by the way, is a sort of enclosed courtyard in a fortification, like a castle or, like in this case, a defensive wall. Now, Wilson would go on to publish a book entitled A Textbook of Automatic Pistols, published in 1942. He was also known as an avid hunter and angler, 
and like to travel north to Scotland for these purposes, which sets the stage for the main act. So let's do a little bit of background on the history of the Loch Ness Monster. The earliest recordings come from the indigenous peoples of the Scottish Highlands, the Picts, who depicted a mysterious beast with flippers in stone carvings from the area. The first written account comes from the biography of St. Columba, an Irish abbot credited with bringing Christianity to Scotland, which dates back to 565 CE. This describes him traveling in Scotland and coming across a monster that had bitten one swimmer and was preparing to attack another. The account states that he told the beast to go back, which it obeyed. Now, the first modern era sightings begin around 1933, coinciding with the completion of a road adjacent to Loch Ness, which provided unobstructed views of the lake. In April of that year, a couple described an enormous animal like a dragon or prehistoric monster crossing the path of their car before disappearing into the water. This inspired the newspaper The Daily Mail to hire big game hunter Marmaduke Wetherill to find it in December of 1933. He quickly found large footprints along the lake's shore, which he attributed to a very powerful, soft-footed animal about 20 feet long. However, zoologists from the Natural History Museum inspected casts of these prints and determined that the tracks were identical and were most likely from an umbrella stand or ashtray that had a hippopotamus leg as a base. You know, the kind of thing a big game hunter might have in their den. Oops. Now in April of 1934, Wilson traveled to a shooting lodge on the Black Isle with an insurance broker friend named Maurice Chambers. What happened next would take the world by storm. A photo of the Loch Ness Monster, yes, that picture that you're imagining, was published in the Daily Mail, reportedly taken on April 19th at 7.30 a.m. by the British gynecologist Dr. Wilson, becoming known as the Surgeon's Photo. The initial story is that he took the film to be developed in Inverness, and when the chemist returned the photos, he asked Wilson, is that the Loch Ness Monster? To which he replied, I don't know. It was sold by Maurice Chambers to the Daily Mail for £100. Interestingly, the British Medical Association fined Wilson £1,000 for allowing his name to be associated with the photo, as the publicity that ensued was deemed to be advertising and therefore improper. He in fact seemed embarrassed by his role in the affair and rarely spoke about it. But there is a fantastic twist to the tale. Upon the death of Maurice Chambers in 1994, it was disclosed in his will that the picture was in fact a hoax. The object in the image was that of a toy submarine purchased in Richmond and fitted with the head of a toy sea serpent. But at least this photo launched an entire tourism industry for the area, including a Loch Ness Center, which frankly now is on my bucket list. But let's continue with the wild life story of Robert Kenneth Wilson, which is about to get even wilder, if you can imagine. During the 30s, Wilson was a bit of a Cassandra about an impending war with Germany, being labeled as a damned nuisance and civilian maverick by the war office. Unfortunately, his prophecy came true, and at the outset of World War II in 1939, Wilson closed his practice at Queen Street and rejoined his regiment not as a surgeon treating civilian casualties on the mainland of England, mind you, but instead with Britain's fighting forces. Initially serving as a major lieutenant colonel in the Royal Artillery 85th Field Regiment in Northumberland, in 1942 Wilson joined the Special Operations Executive. 
For those of you that don't know, the SOE was a highly secretive group formed in 1940. Known as Churchill's Secret Army, or the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, it focused on espionage, sabotage, and reconnaissance, often operating in occupied territory. It was dissolved at the end of the war. Wilson joined the SOE in 1942 and was dropped from lieutenant colonel to major to become operational. He was parachuted behind enemy lines on two missions, one in Holland and the other in France. Remember, at this point, Wilson is 43 years old. He was awarded the French Croix de Guerre and the Royal Orange Order of the Netherlands for his actions. But that was not all he did. As the war in Europe was winding down, Wilson was sent to join the SOE in the Far East Theater. In 1945, he was parachuted in Sarawak, Borneo, with the Z-Force personnel as part of the Semit II operation. The Z-Force was a special unit comprised of Allied Special Forces, predominantly Australian, and the Semit II operation involved getting behind enemy lines to gather intelligence and train the indigenous people in guerrilla warfare. During this deployment, Wilson operated on a local who had cut the tendons of his forearm. With the help of the local medic providing anesthesia, he treated the man in camp. Following the war, rather than returning immediately to his surgical practice, Wilson moved to the Solway Firth between England and Scotland to run a fishery. But this bucolic lifestyle would not last, as he was called back to the knife. The territory of Papua New Guinea was desperately short of doctors, and Wilson applied and was accepted, becoming the first qualified surgeon in Rabaul in June of 1950. During his time there, he published articles on appendicitis in native New Guineans, rupture of the spleen, four cases, and pancreatic calculus in an expatriate. I was able to read the appendectomy articles, thank you Medical Journal of Australia, and noted a couple of interesting things. The first, that despite the article being written in 1954, there was a post-operative wound infection that grew bacteria resistant to all antibiotics that were available at the time, obviously, with the exception of oxytetracycline. I guess antimicrobial resistance is an older problem than we might think. Now, the second was that Wilson noted in a couple of articles the rarity of appendicitis in the indigenous population compared to Europeans, and that his two patients, both native New Guineans, had become dependent on a Western diet of preserved foods rather than their traditional diet of fresh local foods like fish, yams, coconuts, and other fruits. Pretty forward-thinking, as numerous studies have since shown a relationship between the development of appendicitis and a low-fiber diet. Tuberculosis was endemic in the territory, and although anti-tuberculous drugs were available, access was limited, and many patients suffered from cavitating lung disease. There was a need for an old treatment of TB, which was a thoracoplasty to collapse the upper lobe of the lung to allow healing. Wilson took leave in late 1953 to learn thoracic surgery, particularly the SEM thoracoplasty in Oslo, Norway. He published his results of 28 patients and the lessons he learned in the process. In his first 15 cases, there were three deaths, but none in the next 13. Despite this improvement, the local health authorities decided to bring in visiting thoracic surgical teams. Within 10 years, though, surgical treatment of TB had become obsolete with improved medical therapies. By the end of 1956, Wilson resigned from the Territory Service to become the medical officer in the Australian Petroleum Company based in Port Moresby, 
the capital of Papua New Guinea, and by the mid-60s he'd retired from medical practice. Robert Kenneth Wilson died in Melbourne, Australia in 1969 of esophageal cancer. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. I've got a number of irons in the fire, so not sure what the next episode will be, but hopefully it'll be soon. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you download episodes, and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on this podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.